I'm Mark Beattie, Editor-in-Chief of Archives of Disease and Childhood. I'd like to highlight some of the content from the August edition of the journal. The first article I'd like to discuss relates to sexually transmitted infection and its relation to sexual abuse in young children. Sexually transmitted infections are an uncommon but recognised consequence of sexual abuse amongst young children. There is agreed guidance for assessment and management. Reading and colleagues report the incidence, mode of presentation, investigation and child protection procedures in children between age 1 and 12 years presenting with common, non-viral, sexually transmitted infections. This was a BPSU survey run between 2010 and 2012. There were 15 cases reported, 7 of gonorrhea, 1 of syphilis, 6 of chlamydia, 1 of trachonomus, which gives an overall incidence of 0.075 cases per 100,000 per year. Five cases presented with ophthalmic infection Sexual abuse was confirmed in three by court or case conference and was suspected in a further seven children. Most cases were identified following symptomatic presentation. In an accompanying editorial, Patrick Kelly discusses the data, suggesting that the incidence may be an underestimate as the following assumptions were made to calculate. Children with genital symptoms were brought for medical contact, their symptoms were adequately assessed, samples were taken and processed correctly, and positive samples were notified to a paediatrician and to the surveillance unit. He also addresses in depth the emotive question, does sexually transmitted infection always mean sexual abuse in young children? The article and the editorial are essential reading for paediatricians. The second article that I'd like to cover relates to living with teenagers. Social disadvantage is associated with elevated parenting stress and lower rates of uptake, higher drop rates and poorer outcome in conventional parenting programmes. A peer-led parenting intervention, EPEC, has been successfully implemented with socially disadvantaged parents of 2 to 11 year olds. Adolescents, however, can be more challenging and there is less evidence of efficacy of such interventions. In this edition, Mickelson and colleagues test the feasibility of a peer-led parenting intervention for parents of adolescent children. The intervention was a structured group-based session, living with teenagers, delivered by trained peer facilitators, participants with parents seeking help. Feasibility was assessed in terms of uptake and completion. So there were 42 parents, 79% from minority ethnic backgrounds, almost 50% of whom were lone parents, and 71% completed more than five sessions. The authors note that there were significant changes observed in reduced parental concern, increased parenting satisfaction, and fewer negative expressed emotions. The intervention was well received with high uptake 
among traditionally hard-to-reach parents with the potential to impact on attitudes, behaviours and outcomes for vulnerable families struggling to deal with difficult adolescents. The authors acknowledge the limitations of this study, it's observational, there's no definite evidence of impact on the teenagers, and they recommend further research including controlled trials to assess potentially long-term impact. The third article I'd like to cover relates to the parental perspectives on the evaluation and management of fever in young infants. Persistent or high fever resulting in admission to hospital will usually trigger extensive investigations to rule out serious bacterial sepsis. In this edition, Dee and colleagues report the perspectives of 36 parents, there of 27 infants admitted under age three months who had a full septic screen, antibiotics and a favourable outcome. In some respects, the findings are not surprising. Parents felt very vulnerable, fear the possibility of severe illness, experience a sense of helplessness and loss of control. Parental empowerment was key to the themes that emerged. Parents value interactions that inform, support and involve them during the course of medical investigation and management. Significant potential barriers to this can exist and are discussed in detail in the paper. This should prompt us all to reflect on our practice. In the article, Table 4 lists key challenges for parents and suggests strategies for clinicians to deal with them, promoting empowerment and partnership during the infant's acute illness episode. There is an impressive accompanying editorial written by a parent. The fourth article, well in fact a pair of articles that I'd like to discuss, relate to the assessment and management of short and tall stature. So short stature is common and paediatricians need a clear strategy for the assessment and management. As part of that it's important to recognise what's normal. Most pathological causes will be associated with clues in the history or examination. In this issue, Cheatham and Davies present an evidence-based update and practical strategy for dealing with such cases. It includes factors that should trigger a more detailed assessment, including malaise, dysmorphic features, slow growth, small size with normal weight gain, and how to establish that the healthy short child is growing appropriately for their family size, which can potentially be reassuring for the child, family and clinician. In an accompanying review by the same authors, the assessment and management of tall stature is discussed. It's much less common, it's mostly familial, although there are a series of rare disorders which need to be considered and will on occasion require specific treatment. I've made the pair of reviews editor's choice this month. They're a useful and practical update on growth disorders in childhood. My name is Mark Beattie. I'm Editor-in-Chief of Archive Disease in Childhood. I hope you found this podcast of interest. Please refer to the journal website to read the papers in full. Thanks for listening.